Here's what 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says. It says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. But it's far from clear that what Paul means by that is that every Christian needs to become what we would call a member of some local church. So does a Christian have to do that? That's one of the questions we'll be discussing today. Let's pray together. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now, let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. In 1995, a business professor at Columbia University conducted a now-famous study about the proliferation of choices in our world. Uh, She conducted this study in a California gourmet market using jams. Right? And, and the study was, let's see how many people stop to take a free sample in this gourmet market. Um, the way she structured it was that for a few hours, they laid out 24 different jams. And they saw what percentage of people who walked by stopped and took a sample. And then for the next few hours, they would do all, uh, only six jams were, were uh, set out. And they saw how many stopped by. And then back to 24 and then back to six, on and on. When do you think more people took the free sample? When there were 24 to choose from or when there were six to choose from? Actually, 24. And so you think, hey, you know, there it is. More choice is better. People are drawn to the large selection. However, when it came to actually buying jam... It was a different story. So 30% of the people who sampled from the small selection actually bought a jar of jam, but only 3% of the people who sampled from the large selection bought a jar of jam. That study has now been replicated in any number of fields beyond the jam industry, and what's been concluded, at least tentatively, is something like this. We all love having a lot of choices, in theory. Right? But when it comes to actually committing to something, all these choices that we have in front of us can actually be paralyzing. And I'm not aware of a study like that being done with regards to church and church participation, but experience tells us that it probably wouldn't be much different. There might be a similar pattern we'd see. We're living in an age where ease of transportation, uh, online options mean that we have more choices than ever. We aren't stuck just going to the church that we is within walking distance of our house, and we love some aspects of that. That's really great in some important ways, right? Uh, but when it comes to committing to a particular church, there seems to be an unprecedented paralysis for Christians, at least in our part of the world. Why is that? Maybe part of it is that if there are four good church options for me to choose from, and I choose option A and commit there, then I've effectively deselected options B, C, and D, which means I'm going to be missing out on the great things about churches B, C, and D that are better than what's going on at church A in some ways. And so we've seen the pattern. Suburban Americans hop from church to church, one for weeknight gatherings, one for Sunday mornings, We go to one when the ace preacher is preaching, but then uh, when he's on vacation, we go somewhere else. Uh, One for small group, one for youth group. We make the most of all of our options this way without limiting ourselves to just one. And on one level, we ask, why not? You know, we go to 
Trader Joe's for produce and then go to Aldi for staple foods and then go to Jewel for their baked goods maybe. You know, aren't we just getting the best of all worlds? What's the harm in that? In this series, our No Spectator series this spring, we're looking at body life in the local church and the vision we've been trying to lay out is one that we're hoping is relentlessly biblical. One in which we're looking here in God's word for cues as to how we are to do church before we ever look at church growth manuals or the prevailing wisdom of the day. What we've already seen in this series is that looking at scripture first for how to do church can release us from the sanitized cages that we sometimes get put in and and it, it rebukes some of our individualistic consumerism of our current church age and it involves treating church not as an event that we attend but rather as a family to which we belong. We've already seen all that and today I want to make a case from scripture that there's harm. There's real harm in the uh, sample from several churches but commit to none approach. Um, I want to try to convince you from scripture that that approach reflects more of our consumeristic age more than it reflects a biblical theology of church life. So we've already spent enough time this morning in this introduction talking about painting a picture of that commitment averse model. Uh, So we're going to be able to start today by identifying some problems with it and then looking at a solution in Scripture and in the history of the church that uh, is church membership. That's been how our sisters and brothers around the world have countered that commitment and submission of verse consumerism. And I want to just acknowledge potential pushback and finish with some action steps there at the end. That's a lot to cover. So uh, let's jump in with problems with this uh, commitment of verse approach. I want to bring up five. First, if I'm hopping from church to church, sampling here and there, not committing to one, who will miss out on my one anothering, so to speak? And whose one anothering will I miss out on? And I'm referring there to the 60 or so times in the New Testament where we're called to take certain actions or have certain attitudes toward one another, love one another, uh, bear with one another, uh, live in harmony with one another. A quick Google search and you can find the whole list there of the one another passages in the New Testament. The thing is, we're not able to actually follow most of those if we're not committed to one church family. Here's what I mean, a few examples. How do I forgive others and fulfill that command if I'm not close enough to the others in my church family to even be offended by them and have to forgive them? How do I fulfill the command to admonish one another if I'm not close enough to those in my church family to earn that right in their life to speak a word of rebuke when they need to hear it. On the flip side, if if I am invested in one family, I can do so deeply. Now, on Sunday morning, the folks that I see out in the foyer, I can be offering those one another's to them. And, and, and then at life group, when, when we're gathered in someone's home in the life group, I can offer one another's there. And then when I drop my kids off at youth group, I can one another with the other parents who are there and some of the other students uh, that are getting dropped off as well. And it's all the same people, the same church family that I'm sinking deeper and deeper and deeper into life together with. Um, I can't do that to the same degree when I'm sampling here and there from several churches and everyone is only an acquaintance. Second problem, how do the elders know whom they are responsible for shepherding? How do the elders know whom they are responsible 
for shepherding. As a, as a first-time homeowner this year, I'm learning the delicate dance of the property line. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? How far do I mow, and then where does my neighbor take over, right? Or, or on the other side, how far do I rake the leaves, and then at what point is it their responsibility? And it seems like, well, just use the property line, but... There's like six inches between his driveway that is actually his, but, you know, do, am I really going to just leave that? That could be seen as petty, right? But then if I mow it, what if he doesn't like the way I mowed it, right? Or, or what, if he, what if he thinks I'm making a claim on his property, true, right? I worry about these things. Um, believe it or not, there's something similar that goes on when... Us pastors have pastor gatherings, right? We try to spend some time together, local pastors in the area. And when we become aware that there's somebody, hey, they're going to your church or they're going to my church too. We have, it's a little bit of awkward conversation that takes place. Are are you their pastor or am I their pastor? And look at what Hebrews 13 says. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You hear that? The elders at North Suburban Church are going to have to stand before Almighty God and give an account for how they have cared or kept watch over the souls of everyone in this church. The thing is, in this era where people are kind of hopping around, it's not always easy to know who it is that we're going to answer to God for, who it is that's under our care. Third, how do I know, on the flip side, to whom I, as a member, am responsible for submitting? How do I know, as a member, to whom I am responsible for submitting? Same verse. Let's look at it from the other perspective. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. So if I'm called to obey or submit to my church leaders, but I'm attending multiple churches, which set of leaders am I called to submit to? Right. And I'll just give one example of a, of a practical way this could work out. You've got the husband who has now slipped into having multiple affairs. Uh, the wife wants a temporary uh, time of separation. The elders at the church say that's a good idea for the moment. Then the husband goes to the other church that they sometimes attend and goes to those elders, tells his story, and they say, no, 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 temporary separation is a bad idea. What gets done then? Whose elders are they called to submit to in that situation? This should never be the case. The biblical pattern is that we'd have one church family whose elders we'd submit to, even though we know they'll be imperfect, even though we know that at times they may see things that we don't like. How do I know whom I am responsible for submitting? Fourth, how do I know if I'm saved? How do I know if I'm saved? Now, for some, this might seem like that doesn't even make sense. I'm saved because I prayed a prayer once in which I asked God to come into my life and Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. That's why I'm saved. However, there are a lot of people who prayed a prayer once who will end up spending eternity in hell. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus, Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, many, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? These are people who are engaged in ministry. Then... 
Jesus says, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. If there are people who sincerely believe that they belong to Christ, yet who will find out on that day when he returns that they did not actually belong to Christ at all, then it would be foolish of me to think that I'm so enlightened and so self-aware, right, that my own subjective inward impressions are enough to confirm my salvation, right? Just because I think and feel that I'm saved, I must be saved, right? That would be foolish. I need others to confirm that, right? It's just what I did when I changed careers from being a high school teacher to being a pastor and, and, took, and left my job and came to seminary, right? I, I thought I enjoyed teaching the Bible. I thought I was decent at it. But it would have been extremely foolish for me to just quit my job and go to seminary without anybody speaking into that. I sought counsel from many, many people and only went to seminary after I had heard many people affirming that in my life. And, and it's tragic when young people don't do that and they go rushing off into seminary saying, I'm going to be a pastor because they feel this subjective sense that they, sh- they are called to be a pastor. But then I've seen them, they're my friends, they get, come out of seminary and can't find a job because that subjective inward call that they feel, nobody else, no church feels the same way or is affirming that. As tragic as that is for people going into ministry, it's even more tragic when we're talking about our souls and our salvation, right? How tragic is it if I, if I claim that I belong to Christ, but there's no local church family who can confirm that in my life? It'd be foolish in that case to trust my subjective inward impression and just assume that I'm saved because I feel that I am. Fifth and finally, what will the world think of Christ? We might ask, what does the world think of Christ in an era in which churches tolerate Commitment phobia. Um, think about the, the person the the person who doesn't know Christ, but all they know is that their neighbor, who they know goes to church sometimes, is someone who preys on the poor in their job, or who cheats on her husband, or who abuses his kids. And that's what they know of Christians. And they also know that that Christian's church, they just keep going to that church, and that church never says a word to them about it. What they conclude about Christians and what they conclude about Christ is Christians are the sort of people who are always railing against the sins out there in the world, but they don't do anything about it when it's within their own ranks. But imagine, imagine if we return to the practice of the Bible, practice of the first several hundred years of the church, in which we only affirmed people as Christians whose lives lined up with their profession of faith. And imagine if we followed the biblical and church practice of separating from those in some, in some formal way from those whose lives ceased persistently and flagrantly to line up with the faith that they professed. It might be odd to our neighbors, but at least we wouldn't be so open to the charge of hypocrisy, right? And the name of Christ wouldn't be dragged through the mud. In summary here on this first point, these problems, uh, making the case that this commitment-averse church-sampling approach uh, reflects more of a mindset of a consumer than the biblical mindset of that of a contributor. Uh, it reflects a more individualistic 
idea rather than the family-oriented sort of idea that we see in Scripture. Now, the Bible's solution to that is something that we call church membership. So in that, step one, become a member. Now, for some, I know red flags are going up, and you're saying, show me chapter and verse where it says, thou shalt become a church member, right? And in a sense, you're right. There isn't that chapter and verse, right? Uh, Just like the Bible never says, God is triune, the Bible never says, thou shalt become a church member. But just because the Bible never uses the word trinity doesn't mean that that isn't an important doctrine that we see on every page of scripture when we understand it, right? And it's something similar with church membership. Once we understand what membership in a local church means, we start to see it popping out on every page. I'm going to give us the next few minutes a way too brief theology of church membership and where we get this idea. Uh, There's a book out on that back table. It's in blue. You can actually check it out from our church right there. It's called Church Membership. That will go into more detail if you're interested. It's by Jonathan Lehman. Let's look at a few scriptures here. It begins with the idea that Jesus, uh, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. It's Matthew 28, 18. Yet, Jesus delegates some of that authority to his church, right? And, and not to individuals within the church, but to the church as a gathered community. Um, here's how Jonathan Lehman says it in that book. Jesus didn't leave us to govern ourselves and to declare ourselves his citizens. He left an institution in place that both affirms us as believers and then helps us to give shape and direction to our Christian lives. And that word citizens there is worth further reflection because we think about in Ephesians 2 where citizenship and membership are tied together. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We have a citizenship in two earthly kingdoms here on this earth, but a more ultimate citizenship in heaven, according to scripture. But have you ever been stuck in another country without a passport? Anybody ever been in that situation? You lost your passport or it got stolen? <clears throat> I have not. You have? Yes, Nevla. Um, could you then go to the airport for your return flight home and just say, hey, just take my word for it. I'm a U.S. citizen. Right? Um, we couldn't do that, of course, because it's not enough for... Uh, we don't have the power to affirm our own citizenship. Right? And it's the same in Christ's heavenly kingdom. We need a greater authority than just our saying we're part of it to affirm us as part of that kingdom. And what is that authority? It's the church. We might call it an embassy uh, because just like in that situation where you lose your passport overseas, you have to go to the embassy and and the ambassador and the ambassador's staff will affirm that you are in fact a U.S. citizen and give you the paperwork, the documentation to prove it. There's a corollary in the life of faith. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that we're his ambassadors. So it might not be too much to say that, that we, when we gather together as a church, are an embassy of Christ's rule here on earth. And we've been given an ambassadorial function to hear someone's profession of faith and evaluate it and say, is this a legitimate profession of faith or not? That's actually what we do when we receive new members at our member meetings. We'll do that in April. There will be some new members, that are, new member candidates that will be brought before us, the elders will propose, and we, as members of this church, will either affirm or not those people 
as members of the church based on whether we find their profession of faith to be credible. Christ has given us that power within our church family to members of that church family as a gathered whole. Um, When we understand church membership, when we start to peel back some of those layers, we start to see it on every page of Scripture, really. Uh, You think about, uh, you you read in Acts about 3,000 being added to their number, and you start to realize, wait, they had a number in mind that they knew who was part of their number, and then when 3,000 were added, they were keeping count somehow. And then then you read in 2 Corinthians 2, this case in which uh, somebody's persisting in flagrant sin, and and Paul says, expel this person from the congregation, and he says, the, the punishment of the majority is enough. But then when you reflect on that, you think, well, if there's a meaningful way to speak about a majority, they had to have known their total number and who was in in order to speak of what's the majority within that whole. And you start to realize that the early church, and as reflected in the New Testament, what is here in Scripture depends on there being something like what we would call membership in order for what's there to make sense. You think about those bright line passages in the New Testament where it seems like God wants there to be a bright line between his church in the world where it says, come out from them and be separate in 2 Corinthians 6, or, or, or uh, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. All of that requires a bright line and what, what we would call membership. It's some way of saying, here are the people who are, we are affirming as Christians, and, uh, and, and, and they're set apart from those who haven't been affirmed in such a way. Um, one more, maybe. In Ephesians 4 and 5, we see this analogy of the church being a body with Christ as the head, and we start to read that, and we, when we understand what church membership is, we start to think about, <clears throat> well, how could I meaningfully go on professing to have Christ as head if I haven't been joined to the body of Christ, right? And I use that word joining, but really it's probably better to talk about submitting to a local church submitting to the body of Christ. It's, it's, it's less like a country club or a gym membership in which we still preserve the right to conduct our lives on our own. And, and the New Testament preserves it as more, something more serious. It's, it's more like marriage in some ways. Now, it's not like a marriage covenant in every way. And that's an important distinction. For example, the covenant, the new covenant that Christians are a part of today is primarily, first and foremost, a covenant between ourselves and God. It's vertically oriented. And so it is possible to leave one church for another church and remain in covenant relationship with God. But there are horizontal entailments, too, of this covenant that we're a part of. There's a pattern of covenantal life with one another that we're called to. And so, in some ways, there are similarities to a marriage covenant. For example, there will come a day in which, most likely, you will find yourself thinking, uh, I want out. I picked the wrong church, right? It's too hard here. I'm too hurt. I want to escape, right? The call then, with this commitment, uh, according to the New Testament pattern of life together, is not to bail immediately but rather to do everything in your power to fight, to work, to remain, if at all possible. In summary here, uh, we here at North Sub don't see membership as an optional add-on to the Christian life as much as we see it as a step of obedience to God. As, As a church takes 
particular responsibility for a Christian, and then that Christian takes particular responsibility for that church. And that would be maybe a way that I would summarize membership. A church taking responsibility for a particular Christian, and that Christian taking particular responsibility for that church. So once you become a member, then you fulfill the expectations of a member. In order to become a member, all that's required is to be a Christian. That's it. If you're part of the universal church, we want to affirm you here as a member of this local church, if that's what you desire. Church membership doesn't save anyone. It's meant to affirm that you already are saved, as far as your church family can tell. But once you become a member, then here at Northside, we have three expectations of members. Uh, First, a sustained commitment to growth in living out our statement of faith, core values, and marks of a disciple. Those are the three most important documents here at our church underneath the Bible, helping us understand the Bible, our statement of faith being like the bedrock of how we read Scripture, uh, our core values being what we want our church community to be characterized by as a whole, and our marks of disciple being what we see in Scripture as distinguishing characteristics of someone who is a true follower of Christ. And so each of those three play a role, and we expect that if we truly belong to Christ, we will be living out those and growing in that. Um, We don't have time to look through all three of those right now today, but if you come to the membership class today, we'll get to look at those in more depth. Um, What this expectation is really about is that if I'm a member, if I sign up to be a member at North Suburban Church, what I'm saying, part of what I'm saying in that is that I am committed to growing in my faith. And if the day comes in which I'm not, the day comes in which I become stagnant in any of those areas, and the day comes when even more I, I become rebellious against God in any of those areas, I want you, I even need you as my sisters and brothers in this family of faith to call me out on that, to rebuke me, to, to, to pull me out of that, to show me where I've gone astray and help me to get back on the right path. I'm giving you permission to do that as fellow members in the church by becoming a member, and I'm asking you to do that for me. The only two other expectations of a member is that we'd regularly attend worship together and consistently attend members' meetings where we do important family work and where we exercise that authority that Christ has given us. But you know, in my experience, these formal expectations aren't even always what's most meaningful about becoming a member. Remember whenever I was, you know, 23, 24, when I was just working in a secular job, just another person in the church, um, and I became a member, stepped off the sidelines for being a spectator to become a member of the church, there were unexpected effects of that for me. When I showed up on Sunday mornings, now it was just a different mindset that I suddenly found myself having. Instead of wondering as I walked through the doors, hey, I wonder if this service is going to scratch my itch today. Instead, I found myself scanning the room, looking for that person who was kind of, uh, seemed like they might be in need of encouragement, looking for somebody that I could speak life into or, or, or come alongside, um, you may find the same thing. And did you know, there's something really cool about our constitution and bylaws here at North Sub that you can become a member at 12 years old here at North Sub. You only have to be 12 in order to be a member. Uh, you have to be 18 to be a voting member, but at 12, you can go through the process um, be affirmed by this congregation as a believer in Christ and as a member of this church, and you can participate in our members' meetings as a member, get the microphone, speak into situations, ask questions that we need to be asked, uh, raise issues that we need to be thinking about. You can participate in the life of our family 
that way as young as age 12. Nothing would fire me up more than if in this next month a whole bunch of young people, teenagers even, would uh, decide I'm going to become a member of this church and take, take some ownership of this church family that I find myself a part of. Today, so, hey, I feel like I've been, I'm bordering on making a sales pitch here. Uh, I'm making a case, and you can hear that. I want to I give an acknowledgement, though, even as I've been making this case that I think is a scriptural case, but I want to acknowledge this is a complicated matter to live out, right? Uh, for example, some have been hurt badly by churches where you were members and where authority was wielded over you in ungodly ways. Uh, hear me say I'm sorry that that has happened to you. Hear me say that I'm not trying at all to overlook your hurt or to minimize how hard it would be in that situation to trust a church again in that way. I'm also not saying, and I really want you to hear this, I'm not saying that to leave one church for another is necessarily wrong or or that we need to absolutely submit to a given local church and its leaders no matter what. That is not the case, scripturally. Whenever scripture calls us to submit or obey human earthly authorities, whether it's uh, the government or our parents as children, it's always only under our submission to Christ. In other words, we're never called to submit in such a way that it leads us to violate the commands of our Lord, ever. Right? So while we're never called to obey sinful commands, we are called, though, to submit to ugliness in leadership. The writer of the Hebrews who said, obey your leaders, submit to them, knew that those leaders would not be perfect, uh, that the church wouldn't be free from mess. A church that I submit to will never have its act together. In the moment that it does, it will cease to have its act together as soon as I join it, right? I'm called to submit anyway, right? with all the qualifications given here. So let's finish with some action steps. Um, obviously, the one I'm looking for most of all is I would just love if there were a whole bunch of people who uh, said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to become a member uh, here in April next month. Uh, but if you're not sold on that or if you already are members, a few other action steps, really do text in your questions right now. What are you hearing in this sermon about what, that's bothering you about what I'm proposing here? We want to dialogue about this. And then come to the class today down the hall. There's no commitment involved. We do this twice a year. We can go into more depth there about what this uh, membership will be all about. There's books, resources on the back table to read more about membership. And then if you are a member, find somebody who's 12 years or older, loves Jesus, uh, who's not a member, and encourage them to take that step and uh, join us. Our family life will be richer as a result. Here's the big idea today. Whether at North Sub or elsewhere, commit to one local church, one that will take particular responsibility for you as you take particular responsibility for them. Whether at North Sub or elsewhere, commit to one local church. College students, where you're at, go find a local church that you commit to and you take particular responsibility for them even as they're taking particular responsibility for you. And we call that membership here at North Sub. When we look through scripture, there's no category for a Christian who isn't submitted to a particular local church. That's why here at North Sub, one of our marks of a disciple is that a disciple is accountable, as Robbie told us earlier in the service. That's why, that's why Christians in centuries past would say that anyone who claims to have God as father must have the church as mother. 
It's in submission to a particular group of Christians in a particular place where our own faith is proven and strengthened. So I'd ask, have you submitted to one particular church as a member of that localized expression of the universal body of Christ? Or are you still sampling the 24 jams at the gourmet market? If you're still in sample mode, we want you to officially become part of the family here at North Sub. After all, imagine, imagine if Christ would have taken the commitment-averse approach to his body, right? Can you imagine that? Like if he, if he said, I, I'm going to keep my options open. If the church ceases to really uh, do it for me anymore, uh, I reserve the right to leave, us, leave the church behind and move on to another bride. Instead, he went all in with his bride, uh, there's no escape hatch. As Ryan preached last week, he left his throne to service, didn't stop there. Despite our continued rebellion, he submitted himself all the way to death on a cross. Moved by that commitment on Jesus' part, the founders of North Suburban Church, you may not know this, the founders of North Suburban Church, many of them mortgaged their homes to purchase the property that we're on this morning. Do you know that? That's commitment. Families in our church this year have put up hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans and gifts so that we can perform the necessary renovations in this next phase in our church without having to take on any interest. That's commitment. Christians here in this area and, and far away are today making home purchase decisions in part based on what's going to enable them to be most committed and invested in their church. They are turning down promotions at work so that they can serve at church. They are, they are postponing vacations to prioritize important events in the life of their church. How many of us are that involved, would do the same? If you're a Christian, you may be involved in philanthropies, that's great. You may enjoy leisure activities, I hope you do. But for Christians, the local church is our main thing. It's God's plan A for evangelism, transformation, discipleship, for affirming our salvation for making us more like Christ. Are you all in for the local church? Let's pray. Lord, even as we see this call in your word this morning to commit to a local body of believers, uh, we're reminded that this is only even possible to join up with a local body of believers because of what you purchased, because of your prior commitment to us. Knowing how much we would spit in your face, knowing that we would continue to rebel against you and betray you, still, you came and died for us. We're grateful for that. Help us to be the sort of people who uh, have a resilient commitment to one another uh, out of gratitude for what you first did for us. In Jesus' name, amen.